It's great to see everyone here. I'm so excited to be here. This is uh, just like a dream come true for us, a miracle. Uh, we've been praying for this for years and giving and planning and all these things. And now uh, Grace Community Tiffin is here. It's just great to see everyone. We just want you also to know that next Sunday, as was mentioned, is Veterans Day, and that's a day that we want to honor our vets. And so if you know a veteran in the community, please invite them to come in. We're going to show them how much we appreciate them and as just a small part of our service, but uh, it's a good reason to, to invite them in. At, uh, I got to be here last Sunday for the Connect class afterwards, but this is the first time I've actually gotten to be here for church, and so really pumped about that, and that happened because of Zach's big news. Uh, if you haven't heard, Zach and Kate had a baby girl on Monday, and uh, so we're excited about that. And, uh, and her name is Elizabeth Joy Pinkerton. We're glad that she has a name, and she's actually been able to come out of the hospital. But Elizabeth Joy Pinkerton, we call her Lizzie, and we couldn't be more excited. Well, because of that, Zach was out a little bit. Uh, we decided I would do the, the preaching, and he would do the baptizing. And so just uh, great, great stuff happening. And uh, again, appreciate all of you. It's, it's weird, because when I look back on the, the history of grace, or as far as I know about the history of grace, I, I went to Grace Community Church, became the senior pastor, uh, actually got, got a, a promotion from being a custodian and youth pastor, uh, became the senior pastor in 1993, that year, we averaged about we averaged 383 people on Sunday mornings, which that was a long time ago. And God has grown our church to about 2,000 people that show up on Sunday mornings. And and then we started planning and trying to figure out uh, Grace Community at Tiffin. And here, you guys, you're already you're over the 600 market. You know we've. That launch day, there was over 900, almost 1,000 people here. Since then, every Sunday has been, what, 650 to 700 people or so. So it's amazing what God has done in such a short time. So are you guys excited about Grace? Very cool. Very cool to see what God's doing here. And when I started, I was, when I became a senior pastor, I was 33 years old. Zach is... 31 years old, about to turn 32 years old, and I got to tell you, he knows way more about ministry now than I did then, and he's a, a better pastor and a better preacher now than I was then, so I'm just really excited about how God will use him and AJ and Blaine and all of you uh, to, to reach this county and impact this county for Jesus. So very cool stuff. It's great to see Believer's Baptism, isn't it? Following Christ, following through with what Jesus said that he wants us to do. Um, believer's baptism. So great to see that. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that today. And I'm going to talk about Christianity and baptism. I'm going to do that out of Acts chapter 8. So if you have a device or your Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 8. And as you're doing that, I'll set the context a little bit. This is the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem. And Jesus has given, he's been crucified about a month, two months before. And now the church has exploded in Jerusalem. Thousands of people have become Christians. The first church was a huge church. 3,000 people got saved after Peter preached and thousands more. 
And then they start following God and believers' baptism. And you, and you watch through the city of Jerusalem, these people on Sundays are walking through the city, drenched with water, just coming home. And everybody's wondering, what is happening? And they're impacting their city. As the church grew so fast, they needed other leaders. So they appointed people like Stephen and Philip, besides the apostles, to help lead the church. And they appointed those people. Then all of a sudden persecution starts breaking out. Stephen is doing some street preaching in Jerusalem and he is stoned to death for doing that. We have a guy named Saul, later called Paul, who's standing by watching all that. And persecution breaks out against the church and so that throws everything into turmoil, causes some believers to leave and start doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, which was to take the message to the uttermost parts of the world. And so shortly after that, Philip, another one of these newer leaders, not, an, not the apostle, but another leader, a deacon in the church, he is uh, called by God to do something specific, and that's in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 26, and here's how it happens. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. And so he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch a high, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. And he was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud, and the Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. And when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, so it's Philip coming along the chariot and saying, do you understand what you're reading? You know, because he's trying to keep up. Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, how can I, verse 31, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. So now it's quoting the passage that Philip just heard this guy reading. It goes like this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will... Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is this prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that scripture. So do you get the scene, this this. Rich, powerful man, he's heading back, heading down south, back to Africa. He's got an entire entourage. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Only rich people would have a scroll of Isaiah. He's reading that, and then God tells Philip to go kind of attach himself to this guy. He asks, you understand what's going on? No, come up, and he starts explaining about Jesus from that specific scripture onward. And here we learn some things about Christianity and then about baptism that we saw this morning. Here's what, what we learn about Christianity first. 
first of all, we know Gaza. It's the same area of the world that we describe. That, that's Gaza today in the news, for example. Just was in the news last couple of days. And Ethiopia in the Bible, however, is a little bit different. Ethiopia, biblical Ethiopia, is, is what we now consider Sudan, Sudan, south of the Nile River, about a thousand miles south of Jerusalem. And this guy, um, he is the CFO for the entire kingdom. Back in that day, and this was actually the kingdom of Nubia back then, the king was considered a god, and so he didn't do any affairs of the state. And the queen actually ran the country, big country, so she needed a lot of help. And so then she had people helping her. Well, this guy is the CFO, as I said, in charge of the country. Well, in order for there not to be any charges of sexual misconduct with the queen, in order to work in her presence as a man, you had to be castrated. And, so, and if you don't know what that means, then all you have to do is go up and ask Zach or AJ after the service to give you a detailed description of, of exactly what that is, and they'll be happy to help you with that. But, but the men that worked with the queen were castrated. And now here's the, what I want you to get. Christianity, someone's just now laughing. Okay. Here's what I want you to get. Christianity, what we learn about Christianity first is that Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. I mean, look at, look at just the two main players in this story here. You have Philip. He's just a regular um, middle-class Jewish man who is in the church. He's not an apostle, though he's elected to an office after that. And on the other hand, you have this rich man, this uh, black man, Ethiopian man, who's uh, sexually altered, and we don't know if he did that by his own choice to enter into the service, or he was just selected because he was a really smart guy, and they did that to him. But he's rich, and he's from sort of the, the edges of civilization as far as Jewish people were concerned. So God brings these two people together. And Christianity, it reminds us that Christianity does not belong to just one culture or race more than another. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells the, the apostles that they were to take the message, take Christianity to uh, not only Jerusalem, but Samaria, the outer parts of the world, that it's supposed to go everywhere. And, and just in Acts 8, 9, and 10, we see that happening, the gospel going to Samaria, here the gospel is going to, we'll see in this story, to Africa. Also we see relig Jew uh, Jewish Pharisees come to Christ. We see Roman centurions come to Christ. I mean, all this is happening. Now, when I say Christianity is inclusive, I say that because that's not what you hear on most college campuses today. Because what you'll hear there will, will sound a lot different. They'll say something like this. That religion only exists to control people. Religion only exists. It was just a way for cultures to be brought together and controlled as people started living together in cities. And then, because of that, they don't believe one religion is any different than another. I remember one time I was on a flight from Kathmandu, um, Nepal, to Thailand. And I was sitting next to a college student 
that was from, I think it was Norway. And so we, we just struck up a conversation, and she said, yeah, I'm going here, and I'm actually trying to study Hinduism. And so we got to talking about religion a little bit. And what I noticed from her is that she, her view, when she found out that what we did and that we had uh, some orphans in Thailand that we were caring for, and most of those orphans, even though the country's about 1% Christian, had become believers, that kind of offended her because she felt like, oh, that's a form of cultural imperialism, that you're taking this religion and you're taking it into this other cult- culture and you're interjecting it there. And I sort of re- told her, that she didn't realize this, that actually Christianity had been in India for 2,000 years. I mean, before anything, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But the point is this, a lot of people think, hey, when you're taking that in, well, that's, you're kind of doing something wrong. You're violating that culture. That's, that's exactly not what happened historically And that's not what Christianity is doing. Christianity, history shows it, but statistics show it today that Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. Statistics this way, for example. Islam, 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, North Africa, or South Asia. Only 4% of the world's Muslims live in Europe or North America or South America or China. Hinduism, 98% of Hindus in the world live in India or South Asia. Buddhism, 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. But people who claim Christianity, people who call themselves Christian, they are spread all around the globe. 25% of them live in South or Central America. 22% of them live in Africa, all that number's greatly growing. 15% live in Asia, but that number is growing rapidly. Only 12% of the world's Christians live in North America. 20 plus percent are in Europe. And then we have places, and this happens all over the place, places like Korea that went from about 1% to 40% in the last 100 years. And that we could be seeing the very beginning of that happening in China today. So what I'm saying is Christianity is by far the most culturally diverse religion in the world. Because it spread to all those regions of the world from its culture of origin. And think about this. You talk about inclusive. I mean, most of the time we think about religion. Well, religion is for moral people, right? Christianity is not that way. Christianity is for the immoral people. As a matter of fact, to be a Christian, you have to know that you don't measure up morally. Christianity has people like David Stacy. I mean, he's a believer. I mean, it's, it's wide open for anyone to come to Christ, the most inclusive religion. And Christianity, by the way, is way more inclusive than all the people out there talking about inclusiveness and criticizing Christianity. David says he's not in this service, right? Yeah, I thought he was back helping. Yeah, so good. All right, we're good. Don't, don't say that I said that. But. So Christianity is not the most inclusive, not only the most inclusive religion in the world. We might ask, well, why is that? Ironically, Christianity's the most inclusive religion in the world because it's the most exclusive religion in the world. And let me explain that. Christianity is the most inclusive. Anybody can be a believer. Anybody can follow Christ. All are invited to come. 
but it's also the most exclusive religion in the world. And we'll see that play out here. Here's what's happening. Verse 34, what's happening in this story is the official is reading the Isaiah scroll. And he comes to a passage in Isaiah 53, and he's asking, I don't understand. He's talking about this guy suffering, the suffering servant. Is Isaiah writing about himself because he was persecuted as a prophet, or is he writing about somebody else? And so he asks Philip, and Philip answers this question. But notice, Philip does not give the Ethiopian a postmodern answer, which would sound something like this. Uh, well, Mr. Official, you know, what you need to do is deconstruct this and break it down in, into what you think it is, and then you decide to interpret whatever truth this means to you. It's not how Philip answers. Philip says, I know exactly who he's talking about. Let me tell you. Let me teach you what, who this is. And he's talking about Jesus. So how is Christianity more exclusive than any other religion, because other religious leaders say, hey, come to me and I will show you the way. Jesus says, I am the way. There's no other way to God but through me. That's what Jesus is telling us, totally exclusive in how we can be right with God. But this, it's a really interesting incident in history that happens here. Because we can ask all kinds of questions. One thing that I've thought about is, well, I, I wonder, you know, did, why Isaiah? Did God just lead him, this, this guy to start reading Isaiah 53? Had he started at the beginning and he's just now getting to Isaiah? You know, what's going on? Why Isaiah? And this is very interesting because it centers on the suffering servant. So it's really talking about what just happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. But there's even more than that. It might have been that something happened on his way to Jerusalem. For, for example, what we know about this guy is that not, he's, he's a rich, he's probably a smart guy, he's, he's running a country financially, but we know he's a seeker of God because he travels all the way to Jerusalem. No doubt he's heard something about the one true God. And actually, he's traveled over a 1,000 miles. This would take him five months. So he's on a five-month journey. He gets to Jerusalem. And naturally, the first thing he's going to want to do is go to the temple, right? But he goes to the temple. And I don't know if he knew this before he went. But if he would have went to the temple in that day, what would have happened is immediately, because he was non-Jewish, like most of us, he would have been excluded from the temple proper. Non-Jewish people weren't allowed to go in there. But then there was an outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which was a place that non-Jewish people could go and hear about God. But then there's one other thing. As he came to the court of the Gentiles, before he entered there, there would have been a sign in the first century that said, eunuchs not allowed beyond this point. And we know that because of the law. You see, that was written by Moses as part of the law. And we know now that it was in there to, to teach all of us that we cannot just presume to go into God's presence as sinful people into the presence of a holy and righteous God. That we're not worthy. None of us are worthy. 
And that was part of that teaching. But not knowing that, here this man, who is a sincere seeker of God, not only as a non-Jewish people, like, like most of us, wouldn't be able to go into the temple proper, he as a eunuch would not even be able to go into the outer court of the temple. And now we find him heading back home on his five-month journey down south of the Nile River. That is where he's heading. And, and he's in the Gaza area, and he's just starting there, and then that's when all this happens. But why Isaiah 53? Here's what's interesting about it to me. No doubt he's crushed, he's disappointed. He, he was excluded from finding out more about God in at least some ways. But he quotes out of Isaiah 53 is what he's reading from, but just three chapters later, and so we don't know if he... Somebody told him to start reading Isaiah 56, and now he's backtracking to get the context. Or he's just reading Isaiah 55 and 53, and in three chapters, he's going to read Isaiah 56. But let me tell you what Isaiah 56 says. Are you ready? Do you understand that transition there? They were in Isaiah 55, but here's what it says in Isaiah 56 that he's about to get to that just laser focuses on his heart. Beginning of verse 3. No foreigner, that's non-Jewish person, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me, and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Wow. Mentioning eunuchs twice in the special, laser focus on his heart. And again, Why is he a eunuch? Well, we don't know if he voluntarily did that or they did that to him to serve in the queen's service. But here's what that did. Not only did that avoid any sexual misconduct, the other thing is there would be less likely for a struggle for the power of the throne. Because this man's already wealthy, he's already got everything he wants in life, and he has no children as a eunuch to want to overthrow the the throne to pass it on to. So that made it even less likely. That may have been another reason. Of course, the downside is no family. You know, he doesn't have anybody. And and here, that passage of Scripture is speaking to that. Jesus is saying, hey, you're not a Jewish person. You will not be excluded. Oh, you're a eunuch? Hey, he says, I will give you, if you hold firmly to my covenant, I will give you in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Had to be powerful. And the eunuch's reading about this suffering servant. He's asking Philip, hey, who is this guy? And Philip's saying, it's Jesus. And it's really through Jesus Christ fulfilling all these prophecies in the Old Testament that makes the Old Testament make sense to us. Everything comes together in Jesus. It all makes sense in Jesus. And what what do we learn in the Old Testament? That we've all excluded ourselves 
We've all excluded ourselves. We've all rebelled against God's commands. And Jesus came to fix that. For Jesus came for the lepers. He, he became a leopard for the lepers. He became a eunuch for the eunuchs. He became unclean to, so that we could be clean. Jesus was excluded so we could be included. In the verse that's quoted here, Isaiah 53, a few verses later it says this, yet he bore, this suffering servant, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. And that's what we all are. And that's why we all have to understand even be a Christian. You see, Scripture's telling us from the Old Testament to the New that God created us. He created us different from the rest of creation. We were created in His image. In His image, we have self-awareness, and He created us with freedom that we could love God back. But with freedom came sin. And instead of loving God back, we all decided to do our own thing, live our own way, live our own life, do what we wanted to do. And in doing that, we all violated God's commands, every one of us. And if you're ever fuzzy about that, go back and read the Ten Commandments. Keep God first all the time, every minute of every day, 24-7, 365. Never take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, you remember these, right? Honor your father and mother. Keep one day and seven holy. You know, no murder, no adultery, never steal, never tell a lie, never cut. I mean, we do not keep these commandments. We, we can keep them for an hour, a day, or a week. Probably not. Moments in time. But we've all broken these commandments. Then Jesus comes, and when he speaks about the commandments, he raises the bar. Oh, don't commit adultery? Hey, if, if you haven't committed adultery, but you lust in your heart, you've broken, you've broken what the command means. Oh, don't murder, and we're all feeling pretty good about that. And then Jesus comes along and says, if you hate somebody in your heart, you just don't have the guts to murder them. You've still broken God's command. And then Jesus says, if we break one point of the law, we've broken it all. And there's no hope for us. We're all rebels against him. We're all in the same boat. That's how Christianity is so inclusive. Because we're all in the same spot. Rich, poor, doesn't matter what race, color, anything else. We're all in the same spot. Rebels. Alienated from God. And here's the problem with that. God says, because God is perfectly just, in order for there to be perfect justice, and I'm not saying we experience that now, we don't, but in the universe, perfect justice is on its way. And the pro that's a problem for us because justice demands that wrong be punished. You cannot have justice without punishing wrong. Even we cry out for justice. We just don't want it for ourselves. We want justice for that guy. And because we've all sinned against him, because we're all rebels, 
we're all under the same penalty. And that is separation from God forever in a place called hell. Separation from God, that's what we all deserve. Hell, what we all deserve. Then we will get in death for eternity what we wanted all all our life, and that's to keep God at an arm's distance from, from us. And so just knowing about God, just knowing that he exists, just knowing Jesus is the son of God, that's not what salvation is. James tells us the demons know all that and they shudder, they tremble. And so we all have this penalty, but God still loved us. So he allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, fully God, fully man, clothe himself as a human being and live a perfect life. The only person who walked the planet who did not sin, Jesus. And therefore, the only one qualified to pay for anyone else's sins. And then he voluntarily went to the cross and allowed his creation to torture him to death. And as he was bleeding out on the cross, asked God to forgive him. Because he was dying for all of us. And so how does that work? How does that count in our favor, Christ's death? We have to make a decision. And it's not just believing there's a God, and it's not just believing that Jesus is the Son of God, which is true. That's not enough. It's when we put our faith, it's when we believe in Jesus, in the sense of putting our faith in Jesus and trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross in order to pay for our sins. And in order to get there, we have to acknowledge that we have sin, that we deserve separation from God like we all do. We have to get that first. We have to understand that. And then when we realize what Christ has done for us, we put our faith, our trust in him. And, and we do that. And we, when we understand that, we call out to God. We ask him for forgiveness based on what Jesus has done. Because we realize, and here's the problem how people mess up the gospel. We have it in our heads today that if we do good, that somehow makes our bad less bad. That we can even out bad by doing good. It does not work that way. It doesn't even work that way here in our culture. If I'm whipping down 224, say I'm late to preach here, and I'm speeding down 224 and they clock me at 70, and let's say it's a 50 out there, 50 mile an hour zone, I'm going 70. So I get a ticket and I go to court. When I'm at court, I'm standing in front of the judge, tell me if this is going to work. I say, okay, judge, I know I'm guilty. I was 20 miles over the speed limit, but here's what I'm going to do. For the next entire year, I'm going to only go 30 miles an hour in the 50. I'll go 20 under, and by going 20 under all year long, that'll make up for going 20 over. What's the judge going to say? No. He's going to say, Kevin, you don't get extra points for going under the speed limit. Going under the speed limit is what you're supposed to do, right? You don't get points for that. It's the same with God. It's the same with our sin. Doing right is what we were created to do. It's what God's told us to do. It's what we're supposed to do. No amount of our doing right can take away one sin. We cannot save ourselves. 
but Jesus can. Because he had no sin. He took the punishment, the penalty. He was our substitute. He paid our price for sin. And we get that by, by faith. We receive that by faith, by calling out to him. So, not only, that's how it's the most exclusive, but there's only one way to be right with God, and that's through Jesus. And God invites everyone into salvation. That's the inclusive part. Not only salvation, he invites everybody to serve him, to do his bidding. We, we see this with Philip. He's just a regular guy. God's using him in a special way. We see this in the Ethiopian eunuch. Ancient historian Eusebius tells us that when he gets back to Africa with these servants, having been believed in Christ and then followed with believer's baptism, that he goes back to Africa and he plants the first church in Africa. Before there was ever a church in Europe, that's what this passage teaches us about Christianity, but now I want to look at what it teaches us about baptism. We've seen some of our friends get baptized this morning, and I want to pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 8, back to the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, verse 36. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And so, now what's significant, significant about that? This is Gaza. It's a dusty, dry place, right? Even today. This is a, a queen's official traveling with an entire entourage. They have water, right? They have skins full of water. They have you know, what we would call canteens. They're carrying plenty of water. They're, they're riding through the desert. Why does this guy wait till he sees a body of water? Before he says, hey, I can get baptized now. It's because of what baptism means. This passage teaches us about the method of baptism. Baptism is a Greek, the Greek word baptizo, which was not translated. It was just transliterated, meaning it just turned into an English word. Means immerse underwater. If they would have translated it rather than transliterated it, they would have translated it immersed or plunged or dipped underwater. That's what baptism means. That's the method that you go underwater. And that's what's clearly, I mean, because they don't do it. He didn't get sprinkled or anything else that they could have done in the carriage as they were going. They could stop it at any time. No, hey, here's some water, a body of water. What keeps me now from being baptized? Nothing. As it picks up, here's what it says. So the Ethiopian official is with Philip. He, Philip's talking to him for a lapse of time. He's put his faith and his trust in Jesus. And then verse 38. So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. That's the method, baptism, just like you saw here, underwater. And then the next thing, even more important than the method of baptism, is the meaning of baptism. Last thing I want to talk to you about. The meaning of baptism is even more important than the method because people get this confused. 
Baptism does not save us. Baptism does not clinch the deal for us. It's faith in Jesus. And when we call out to him in faith for forgiveness and salvation, that's when we become a believer. Baptism is the first thing that we're supposed to do in obedience to him. It's just what he asks us to do after we've become a believer. And so it's a mark that you are a believer, not a way to become a believer. Does that make sense? Okay, for four of you, you nailed it and you got it. Does that make sense? All right. That's why we get baptized after we become a believer. Now, there's two mistakes that we make. Sometimes we, we make too much of baptism, and that means that we equate it with salvation and that we can't go to heaven unless we're baptized. We know that's not true. Thief on the cross went to heaven. You know, Jesus told him that, that he didn't get baptized. It, it's not a requirement for heaven. It's an act of obedience that God is calling every Christian to do. On the other hand, we can make too little of baptism. And that's like, okay, well, if, that's not, if it's not required to become a believer, then I don't need to do it. And Scripture's saying, no. Jesus is emphasizing baptism. And in Matthew 8, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 19, he says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. You probably have all heard this baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're all supposed to follow through. So here's my challenge to you as we close. If you're here and you're a believer, and by that I mean you can look back to a point in time where you rationally made a decision that knowing you're a believer to reach out and call on God for salvation, asking Him for forgiveness, to come into your life and and we're only doing that sincerely with a desire to follow him. Doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but hey, he's our God. We want to follow him. If you've done that, but you've never, after that time, followed him in believer's baptism, God's calling you to do that. So we're actually having another baptism next, next Sunday in all our campuses, all our services. And so you should grab one of those cards and put your name and a contact number and baptism and somebody will call you this week and answer any questions you have and talk to you about it and see if you want to sign up for next Sunday. But the more important thing, if some of you are sitting here, maybe you've considered yourself that you're, you've been a Christian all your life. And, uh, and so this making a point, this point of decision is a little odd sounding to you or something that you don't really understand. That's the most important decision that you'll ever make, and it doesn't just happen. We're not born as Christians. We're all alienated from God by our sin, and we have to make a decision to call on Jesus, understanding we deserve separation, and he paid our price. That's the only way we ask for salvation based on what Jesus has done and nothing else. And if you haven't done that, that's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And so I'd encourage you to do that. You don't even have to do that in a church service. Acknowledge your sin. Understand what Jesus has done for you. Ask him for forgiveness. And want him to come into your life and help you live it in a way that honors him. Not perfect. Just help you to do life. Let's stand together.